Welcome to Ageless by Rescue. This podcast is devoted to exploring the science of rejuvenation, uncovering the most trusted experts, the must-have products, innovations, and technology in the field of vitality, aesthetics, new beauty, and cosmetic enhancement. Dr. Davin Lim is an Australian board-certified laser, procedural, and aesthetic dermatologist and the founder of Cutis Clinic and Cutis Medical Practices in Brisbane. Dr. Lim is a highly regarded expert around the world for his expertise and is best known for his passion of the treatment of acne scarring, hyperpigmentation, and vascular conditions with various laser types. He uses his social media channels to present easy to understand, researched, and highly informative insights on skin conditions, including rejuvenation, acne, and aging. I've been following Dr. Lim for quite some time and have been pestering him to come on the show, so I was absolutely delighted he accepted my invitation. In this first of a two-part conversation with Dr. Lim, we spoke about some new research and trends that was commissioned by Allegan. Specifically, we discussed underrepresentation of diversity in the media, the link between beauty and identity, how millennials and baby boomers approach aging and aesthetic treatments, and the future of the face. I'm so delighted to bring Dr. Devin Lim's fresh and honest approach to the future of beauty to you in this episode. Now, every now and then you get to have the person you really, really, really want on your podcast. And David, Dr. David Lim, I am so thrilled to have you on Ageless by Rescue podcast today. Welcome. Thank you. I thought you'll never ask, but yeah, I think I reached out before we had a DM, but then look, I really get lost in my DMs, but happy to be here. It's a pleasure. We, uh, we've we got so much to talk about, and I, I think there's something really funny about, you know, a Chinese-Malaysian doctor speaking to an Iranian born in France, you know, a publisher about the subject of diversity in aesthetics. Um, I came across a piece of research from Allegan and um, the research is called the spectra of beauty, which I I loved it. It sounded really cute. Um, But the reason I really, it caught my attention is that they did a study with two and a half thousand Australians on how they see the aesthetic industry uh, treating diversity, whether that be age or sex or uh, ethnicity. And there were some interesting things in there. And I, I'm, you know, I'm curious because, again, because of your cultural background uh, and my cultural background, we weren't represented very well 20 years ago. Sorry, what was the question again? I, didn't I said we weren't, we weren't represented well 20 years ago. You know, you, Chinese, Malaysian models were not featured in aesthetic commercials or pictures. Certainly it, it's a new thing to have uh, more Middle Eastern faces or, or yeah, more yeah. Indian or Asian faces in uh, not only in advertising, but even in, you know, clinical demonstrations and trial teams. Um, What do you think? Have you seen the change in in the industry? Absolutely. Like you say, you know, even in TV commercials, right, when when you watch even insurance, you'll (laughs) always say, oh, there you go, that's the token Asian. Uh, So it's like, I think Australia is a multicultural society now. Uh, When you look back, you know, um, like you said, even 20 years ago, the ethnics are really underrepresented but now i think any industry probably has to acknowledge the uh cultural diversity 
and it's in their interest to actually represent um, uh, who, who we are. And it's, it's, I guess it's weird because when they actually talk about, so I read that study as well about uh, diversity, and, and this is my take on things. Even when you come to simple things like uh, skin color, one of the biggest differences I see is that Asians want to be white and Caucasians want to be dark. And when you look at... And they still want this. So it's exactly the same conversation in 2022 as it was in 1981 when I immigrated as a dark-haired, dark-eyed girl who wanted to be blonde. To be blonde, exactly. So when you look at Asians now, I think, you know, I read that that article as well. And then I'm thinking, man, it's like I see it a little bit differently. I see this. There's a change in who who I guess the minority want to portray as being part of the majority. Um, so I understand. And when, when and part of that report, I remember part of that report where there were some very, very low figures. About, and I'm pretty sure it's somewhere like 15 or 18 percent of um, ethnicities embrace their actual, it's important for them to actually embrace their ethnicities. And when I look at that figure, I think it's pretty damn low. Um, you know, I, I think. But it's honest. Yeah, it's honest, yeah, but I think it's really, really it's very low. Um, and uh, I guess that's part of the research where I'm struggling and go, you know, it, it is, we want to be diverse, um, but then, like you, like you mentioned, you know, they try to homogenize um, uh, beauty, right? And that that's where I, I think I struggle to, to understand uh, the younger generation especially. So one of the, I'll just share some of the stats that I've read from this report because I think it's interesting. They were saying 73% of Gen Z, which is 18 to 39-year-olds, really want to change the way that they look and they have a relationship with ageing and aesthetics that they want to look younger, they want less wrinkles, they want to look good. 62% of Gen X, which is 40 to 59, which is where I fall and I assume you fall. Are you? Yep. Yeah. So 62 of us want that as well. But it's interesting in the baby boomers, it's only 44%. And then to your point about this homogenization of beauty, on the one hand, we're, you know, holding accountable companies and brands and media messaging to show diversity, to show the population as it is. But consumers, from what I can see, respond to very narrow ideals of beauty. Now, I publish a magazine, I publish a podcast, I have a website, I've been a publisher for over 14 years. I have online courses where I put, I think, 12 different ethnicities just in my beauty course, the uh, course that we did online for makeup. But at the end of the day, the articles when we publish on celebrities, there are certain celebrities that people want to look more like, and they're not a diverse group. More people want to look like a narrow group of celebrities. And to me, that's a homogenization of a beauty ideal. You know, I can come to you as a patient and say, you know, I was born with an ethnic nose. Can you inject filler into it to, to smooth out the bump? Um or I've got a hereditary hollowness or dark pigmentation under my eyes, what can you do to make me look more Caucasian? Because 
Maybe that's not a, a genetic trait of, you know, a Scandi or a, a Caucasian person. So, and similarly, you know, when we saw with the surgery, of the Kardashianization of aesthetics, I always say, you know, who the hell wanted a bubble butt? This is <laughs> this is a homogenization. It's it's funneling us into a beauty ideal that we kind of didn't know we wanted. Now suddenly, it's it's what we're all yeah. striving for. Uh, and I think, you know, social media, I guess with, with the prevalence of social media, when you look at Instagram, when you look on YouTube and look at the presenters, I can see where the industry is heading because you, we're just saturated with that. Like if you go to your feed, um, you know, your Instagram feed, you'll see basically the same faces, especially when it comes to, um, like you say, influential people either in Hollywood or, or, or their TikTok. I guess always like Hollywood now. I mean, look at your Instagram and TikTok. They're so much more influential than what Hollywood could be. And it's it's these filtered images, I think it's filtered images out there as well, that probably portrays what people, um, uh, are, well, ideally want to look like. So like you mentioned, um, you know, when it comes to the high cheekbones, the, the counter argument is that there are certain, and I'm guilty of this as well, is we follow the ideal aesthetics when it comes to, you know, lip ratios, when it comes to, um, you know, jawline angles and all. And that's embedded in, I guess, part of our training as well, saying th this is the ideal ratio. So when a patient walks in, you know, the aesthetician, the dermatologist, the, the nurse injector, we're all there ingrained in this uh, beauty uh, spectrum and in that narrow spectra of what is proportionate. And is so that the Fibonacci, the golden ratio? Is that what you you're trained in, or is there a different thing that we're you know the the non doctors, the non aesthetic practitioners don't know about? That when you look at our faces, you're going, gosh, you know, Baha's temples are too wide, and her lips need to be pumped up. You know, I mean, I'm curious, what what's your measure, and what are you trained in? Yeah, I think all of us have that idea of, you know, proportionate um, upper third, middle third, lower third, all that sort of stuff. And, and we, we know the angles and all. But then I think, and we do follow that to a certain degree because that, that does make someone a more aesthetically ideal, um, whether it be cultural or non-cultural. But then it comes to that stage as well where some people can pull it off with that ratio and some people you just can't just because, for example, they're, they're um, you know, two, uh, for example, their jawline is just not enough there or, or too much and you, you just don't want or too broad and you can't and it's mainly bone and not muscle. So I think there's the ideal aesthetics, but then also understand, for me, I also want to, to embrace the actual culture of that person as well. So, you know, for example... Um, yeah, classically for, for Asians, yeah, I want a particular look that also empowers them culturally. So, for example, the medial cheeks in Asians may be a little bit um, deflated or, or hyperplastic. In other words, they're bone to flatter. begin with. Yeah, flatter. It's not, it's not projected. And for me, that's a nice trait. Um, but obviously, if someone's super flat, it's different. But then it's a nice trait to have. And I may actually just, uh, I guess, um, decrease that flatness a little bit, give them a little bit more projection, but not there to actually change their, their face at all. So I think I think it's very important that we embrace our actual culture as well. Um, but then if there's little things that can be corrected or tweaked, I don't mind doing that. So going back to this study, which says that, you know, um, consumers felt that 
the beauty industry was really pitching everything to a Caucasian woman. And, you know, we all agree that the Australian population is certainly way more diverse than we give it credit for and that people feel confident and it reinforces self-worth and belonging when they see someone similar to themselves in advertising, in, you know, um, ideals of beauty. And yet we have countering that, the homogenization of beauty, which is occurring through, you were absolutely right, social media, there are more stars and more powerful um, influences on social media than in Hollywood. They're actually reaching more people. So, as a clinician, as a as a doctor, and you know, you're you've got a huge social media influence and presence. Um, definitely more so than I would say, you know, the, most doctors in Australia. When a, when a someone comes to you, and perhaps you sense a distorted sense of cultural identity or a distorted sense of a beauty ideal, do you feel it's your job as part of the consultation? to help them come back to who they are and help them fall in love with their own unique, you know, blueprint? Yes, I mean, that's a good question. I actually start before the consultation. So when you look at my social media and you look at even, you know, basically what I portray, um, it's never about, you know, me giving, for example, XXL lips. Yeah, so it's not or, or BBLs or what what have you. So I kind of portray what I think is is me uh, and what I think is um, you know aesthetically pleasing, whether it be fillers, laser, surgical, whatever. So it, for me, it starts even before they come to see me because that's who I portray myself. In the context of um, your question, yes, I do. I actually. You know, for example, classically, um, even before we go to cultural, even things like lips, for example, I'm very uncomfortable giving big lips that, that people might look at that and go, wow, that's really good. That's really nice. But I, I won't do that. That's why you don't see that in my social media. In uh, all the stuff which I think is not aesthetically pleasing, I do not portray myself. Um, and, and that's it. And for the patient coming in, hopefully they might see my profile and go, well, you know, Davin's not the guy that's going to give me one mil of the upper lip and one mil of the lower lip and make me look like a duck because I don't. Um, and But for the patient coming in, it's very hard because I do see <laughs> on a daily basis and it's about treading lightly as well because the last thing I want to do is make them feel insecure or, or, or that they've had a bad decision. So when someone comes in and, and they've got something where it's not, you know, either culturally or, or even aesthetically pleasing for that individual, I tend not to make that comment. Um, the way I see it, especially when it comes to injectables, this is all the trends, much like, much like a haircut, like, you know, Kylie Minogue with the thin plucked eyebrows uh, arching in the, in the... That's <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah. So I think all of this, it, it's much like, it, it's like everything else. Um, it's just a trend. And, and hopefully um, that the, I'm pretty sure that in the next couple of years, you'll have more. In fact, I think it's happening now. You're going to have people there with more natural looks rather than actually, um, you know, super high chipmunk cheeks or, or you know, or trout pouts. Well, so, what was interesting to me is when you look at 73% of Gen Z, 18 to 39 year olds, that's a really broad 
um, definition of age because oh. a 39 year old has literally zero resemblance to an 18 year old. So the yeah, fact that they absolutely. get lumped in as a cohort is really bizarre to me. But let's just say Gen Z are interested in aesthetics. What I think um, is interesting, so, you know, we're, we're talking about uh, diversity in terms of age there. Uh, mm. What about what's the difference in your clinical practice and in your, you know, as you've seen people come through uh, between men and women? You know, statistically there's, there's uh, data showing that more and more men are interested in aesthetic um, treatment. So they're having their injectables, they're having lasers, they're having... Uh, fillers uh, and surgery even. Are you seeing that in your clinical practice? Yes, I, I am. Um, I guess, with, and to be frank, I, th- I think this, this too, when we talk about men, there's, I guess, the, you know, gay and then straight. I'm just going to segregate that because the, uh, I think the aesthetics as well is probably different um, in, in, regard, in regards to sexuality. So usually, so most of my clients are straight men, right? And when it comes to aesthetics, I think they are a lot more conservative compared to, to women. And uh, is the and- goal for these, let's just say straight men, is the goal for them to look younger and refreshed rather than hot? Yeah, I think most the, the image I portray is that I will give guys what I think is an ideal uh, treatment. So I'm not there to efface all the wrinkles. That, that's not me. That's not what I do. I'm there to make a bloke. That's why part of my my Instagram is bloke xy because I'm I'm actually a blokey bloke, which means someone that comes in, I'm not gonna. It's just that thing in me where where I want someone to be masculine but have their features soften a bit and, and that's it. So I feel uncomfortable if someone comes in and wants stuff which I just do not gel with. So would I want them as a patient knowing that I'm performing something which I'm uncomfortable with? The answer is that I, I don't want that, All right? So I, I pick and choose my patients. I, I educate them well and I give them what I think is a aesthetic uh, outcome which is pleasing in the context of their age. So in the context of what you've just said, would where you as a practitioner are screening um, the the match between yourself and a patient yeah. so that yeah. you know, I've spoken to Dr. Cara before. I know she was on the panel with Allegan as well. And, you know, one of her big things is, you know, a pre, a, a really long consultation because yeah. a long yeah. consultation is going to prevent the, you know, cognitive yeah. dissonance between what you think you want to end up looking like and what you actually can look like. Yeah. So you're saying you screen your patients for that good fit. Would your advice be also, I guess, the converse of that? So, you know, if you are, say, a baby boomer who's a little bit more conservative or if you are, for example, uh, looking for something that's a little bit more progressive and trend-driven in your aesthetic treatment, would you look for a doctor that in their work, their social media and the conversations that they're having is a better fit to what your end goal is? Yep, hundred um, percent, and that's why you know when people ask me, "How, oh, Dad? Why do you have so much in social media? You take a lot of time and effort with that." I'm trying to make my whole life freaking easier, um, and and you know portray who I actually am as a doctor and what kind of results I give. So um, 
and, and I guess if when, when you look at social media, you can see the different trends. You can see the different uh, doctors and, and different uh, nurses that give different profiles. And I think it's it's good because everyone has a, a particular role. Everyone, it's just like a you know I always say, <laughs> I'm like a hairdresser. I can I I just basically if you suit my style, stick with me. If you don't suit my style, that's okay. You can go somewhere else. So it's and I think that's very important because at the end of the day, when I when I finish work or, or you know or even look at the, what I've what I've done, you've got to feel good about yourself and go, cool, this is really me giving this, not not me being uh, you know uh, just someone someone can push the buttons and actually churn out something. So I think it's uh, very important to to portray who you are as a practitioner. Do you think it's problematic that the age range for people who are having hardcore aesthetic treatment and spending a lot of money because the spend creep in there, and I noticed in the report as well is really getting up there um it was quite a significant portion of the population that spend over $200 a month on aesthetics. That's a lot for most household budgets. If you really think about it, that is a lot, you know, 10 years ago, it would be quite luxurious if you got your nails done or if you went out and had a blow dry, you probably would do it for special events, but it's not uncommon for people to have a lot of grooming and, and if you're getting injectables, you know, that's every three months. And if you're getting lasers, that's every three months or six months. So, you know, people's budget on aesthetics is really stretching. Are you are you finding it alarming that, you know, it's starting now in the early 20s rather than the mid-30s? Yeah, so I guess there's, there's two points with, with that. First, um, a lot of the spend, I think at least half the spend would be on skincare, right? And yes. when I look at skincare, it, it's just, and I'll divide it into two. First of all, if it makes you feel good, and secondly, uh, does it do anything? So I think nowadays, especially with this COVID stuff, um, a lot of people are treating themselves to feel good. Um, so they might be spending a lot of money, like you said, 200 bucks per month, but maybe out of that 100 bucks, even more, will be in feel-good treatments. So you can use that feel-good treatment. Is it like going to a movie or is it like having uh, you know, a nice dinner? Certainly by using skincare where you have self-gratification and go, well, you know what? That feels good. I'm doing something for myself. And I think that's okay yeah, because it's not, you know, it's not every single thing that you do for yourself, especially when it comes to aesthetic, might not be the thing which changes you, but you may actually feel really good about it. And Can I tell, yeah. sorry to interrupt you. You you raised something for me that I actually, I don't know if I agree with you because I thought to myself those crazy multi serum, multi layered routines yeah. that cropped up over COVID and the lockdowns. To me, it felt like the eating disorder of the skin. It was a hyper grooming event that was happening, and I can't. It went beyond self-care. It became a form, to me, a form of control, controlling your environment, controlling something, you know, fetishizing an ideal skin, dolphin skin, jelly skin, whatever skin. And to me, it started to get a little bit crazy and obsessive. And I, you know, I'm a 48-year-old woman who's from the industry and I know the levers that a company can pull to stimulate my desire to be and look a certain way. And I was there. I was triple cleansing at one point. I thought, what the hell for? I haven't left the house in like two months. Why am I triple cleansing? 
but it was a form of control. It was something that I became quite obsessive about. And everyone I spoke to, to your point, was like doing hyper self-care. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think you've got the point there, but I think that is, uh, that's the fact, yeah? And I guess you've got insight because you can go, holy shit, you know, I'm cleaning my face uh, <laughs> three times a day. There must be something wrong. But then when you when you look at the other the other side, it's maybe someone has got not, not as much insight as you, and they're doing that because uh, because they actually feel good about it, and and I think that's okay. Um, and so I guess the more mature I am as a dermatologist, when when we're looking at skincare and go, oh, you know that's crap, that doesn't work, and why why do people actually buy it or fall fall for it? Uh, then I look back and go, hey, you know what? It's because it actually people buy it, not because it does stuff. It's because they feel good about it, and that's that's I think accounts for probably about ninety five percent of skincare because ninety five percent skincare is crap, and the five percent that actually work works. In your practice, do you prescribe skincare? Is that part of what you do in your dermatology? And I know that you have you know a, a clinical practice that's uh, a lot of. Uh, pampering treatments as well as clinical treatments. So the answer to that question, most of the time I'm actually pulling out skincare rather than um, prescribing because most patients that come to see me, generally speaking, will have you know pigment issues or rosacea or melasma or what have you, and they're using just too much crap out there. So in the in the end, I'm actually pairing out the skincare, and especially for sensitive skin, because I've got to say, hey, stop everything, everything, just use a banal you know moisturizer and a cleanser. Uh, and then build up from there. So I'm a really shit salesman. So I don't like to go there with, you know, you've got to buy this cleanser, toner, day cream, eye cream, night cream, you know, all that sort of stuff. I just go keep it simple. I'm an old school derm from that point of view. Um, so the answer to your question is that I don't usually uh, promote skincare in that context. So even for patients who undergo resurfacing, um, you know, we turn back time and the skin looks awesome. You know, I'll say, look, let's start with a retinol, um, see how you go over the next six months and then gradually add stuff in. Um, but I know, you know, basically there's, there's a lot of sales out there that, that promote a whole range, but that's not, I don't do that. I think that that's really interesting because, you know, further to your point, you're you're telling, you're trying to find clients and patients that gel with your aesthetic and also with your um I guess philosophy of philosophy, yeah, yeah. yeah rejuvenation and um, and aging well, and then you're also um, helping them navigate, you know, the the difference between a feel good skincare routine and an efficacious safe skincare routine, um, and you know when you are talking about a, a generation or a cohort that are using things possibly before they need to, they do need to be guided uh, along alongside that. You know, I have an 11-year-old daughter who absolutely understands skincare. She has her own profile at Mecca. She uses cosmeceutical-grade vitamin B serum. She knows, you know, uh, she's educated and interested in preventing acne, which is a whole other topic that I want to get into with you. Um, you know, but that's an 11-year-old. I you know, if I was lucky, I had an Avon catalogue in my room and I was ordering, <laughs> you know, I was ordering some feel-good skincare that made me feel like I was sophisticated. <laughs> yeah, I guess times are changing, eh? <laughs> Do you get parents bringing in younger, 
you know, teens and even preteen patients for you to see because they've already started to feel not the pressure but the interest in looking after their skin, looking younger, looking a certain way? Yes, I think that's refreshing because, I mean, at least two, three times a week I'll have this, um, you know, the middle-aged woman comes in with their daughter and they the daughter comes in because they, she's interested in skincare and chances are, you know, they're, if they're 12, 13, 14, 15, what, what have you, they're on social media, but chances are they probably follow me and then um, understand my philosophy. So for me, it's actually really refreshing because they come in and they go, oh, cool, you're just going to prescribe some retinol to my mum. That's great. You know, you're not going to gonna, gonna go like buy the whole freaking catalogue. And then when, when I hear that and, and then they'll be so empowered and so knowledgeable to go, wow, you know, we're going to start one thing at a time. And I told mum to use the sunscreen and I told her she needs to use it twice a day. And I told her, told her like what you said in on Instagram that she needs to use two and a half to three three mils of, of, uh, of sunscreen. When I listen to that, I'm thinking, man, I feel pretty good because my message is getting out there. Absolutely. And you're, to be fair, I'm going to have links and everything to your uh, social media. It is the most educational, fantastic resource. I go on there to sense check things all the time. It's such a great, and you pick one topic and you deep dive and, you know, you're not pushing it for any reason other than to educate and kind of sort out the, and do a bit of myth busting. So you're right. It is exciting. Like when my daughter comes to me and she understands why she's yeah, using why, vitamin why, yeah. B, it's like, yeah. oh, okay, great. So I think for me that really that really resonates. Uh, you know, I guess the sole purpose why I why I do stuff. Um, and yeah, it's it's flattering that that uh, you know the, the kids follow me and and, <laughs> and understand my philosophy, and that rubs off on the parents, which is cool. Dr. Lim, if you were going to give advice to, um, you know, the the heavy uptake, the Gen Z who were really doing the most uptake on aesthetic treatment and, you know, um, uh, going back to the point of diversity, what, what would be your advice to them in terms of starting and managing their aesthetic journey for the best possible results? Well, I guess, like I said, there's two things, whether they want to feel good about the stuff they do at home to upkeep. Um, and in that way, you know, spend money on, on a simple skincare routine. The worst thing that someone can do uh, is actually spend a lot of money and get worse skin. But that happens really commonly because um, people just buy too much and use too much. So for me, you know, my best advice is, you know, start simple. Um, and it's always, it's always, it's always procedures over skincare. So when I mean procedures, it doesn't have to be a big laser resurfacing procedure. It can be something as simple as a chemical peel, right? Um, in like a salicylic acid peel, if you have lots of acne, that can be a really, really good thing. And then someone who's you know in their in their mid thirties, they don't have to spend big to get a laser procedure that you know costs a couple of hundred bucks. But then fat will do so much more than skincare. So always, it's much like my my. Um, you know, my social media feed is always have be precise as, as to what you want. Don't don't buy a whole heap of stuff, try a whole heap of crap. Just be precise. If you've got a problem, come up with a solution. And the solution sometimes is super easy. Sometimes the solution is not using too much skincare. Your skin will be better off for it. Patients with rosacea, patients with sensitive skin. You don't have to put in, you know, heaps of vitamin C, your retinol, your retinoids, because you'll end up worse than what you have. So I guess 
for me, it's just be precise. Sometimes when it comes to difficult cases like sensitive skin, you do need some help. Go see your dermatologist, spend that, you know, 250 bucks, but then your skin will actually be much better off if you listen to them, um, much better off compared to you trying a lot of stuff and getting a worse outcome. I totally agree with you. And I think the difference that makes the difference is always expert advice. It's always finding exactly, as you said, the specific solution for your specific concern, not for your friend's concern, not for your mum's concern, but for your specific concern. Dr. Lim, I'm, I really am going to insist on having you back on the show. There's so many things I want to talk to you about. <laughs> And I'm going to put my hand up because I would definitely like to do a deep dive on adult acne on a, on a separate podcast with you. But today, I just want to thank you so much on sharing your insights on, you know, the, this next generation of beauty consumer, aesthetic consumer, you know, what we want versus what what's available. And the I guess myth busting this idea that we, we're all really after diversity because in a way we're kind of not. True. (laughs) (laughs) It was wonderful to speak to you. Well, thanks for having me on. Yeah, really appreciate it. Great to talk to you. See you soon. Okay, bye. Ageless by Rescue is brought to you by Rescue Me Academy, Reignite Your Relationship course. Love your relationship but miss the early days? You're not alone. This course will teach you how to identify your issues, stop the fighting, find what you need to be happy, re-spark intimacy and keep the lines of communication open. Join us at rescuemeacademy.com.au to learn more about the program and to download your first free lesson. I hope you enjoyed this episode and if you did, please share and rate this episode. I'd love that. 